Welcome to the First Baptist Barberville Weekly Sermon Podcast. At FBC Barberville, our mission is to gather, grow, give, and go. Join us for live worship on the Court Square in Barberville, Kentucky, or to learn more about our church, visit fbcbarberville.com. Here is Pastor Tyler Shields. be in Acts chapter 17. And if you remember last week, we looked at the story of Paul and Silas praying and praising the Lord as they were in chains in the middle of this Philippian jail, how God miraculously delivered them from that situation. But not only that, but through their praises and through their prayers, God was able to save the Philippian jailer and his entire household, his whole family. Uh, We talked about biblical praise. We talked about how worship should be a theme for our lives. And then after Paul and Silas get freed from the prison, they begin to just carry on this mission that God has given them, taking the gospel all throughout this region. And there was a common reoccurrence that kind of began to happen where they would go into this city. They would either offend some people. I mean, can you imagine the Apostle Paul being offensive to anyone? They would offend some people or people would get jealous because folks were turning to Christ. And so either way, people would essentially run them out of town. And so they had to, he and Silas had to leave Thessalonica and they made their way to this obscure place. It really wasn't, there was nothing great about this town uh, called Berea, not Berea up the road here, but Berea in uh, that part of the, the world. And they go to this place, and it's almost like a little mountain community um, in this region. Such a fascinating location. Again, nothing really special about it, but for some reason, a lot of people went there, and they found that these people were kind of special. And we're going to learn from their example this morning, because not only did the apostles find safety in Berea, but they found a people that absolutely love the Word of God. And that's our focus this morning. Look at verse 10, if you would. The Bible says, as soon as it was night, the brothers and sisters sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. Upon arrival, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. The people here were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, since they received the word with eagerness and examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Consequently, many of them believed, including a number of prominent Greek women as well as men. So looking at their example this morning, we're going to talk about getting into the Word. And my goal for you this morning is to possibly just re-excite you or reignite this passion in your heart for God's Word, for the Bible, to the point that you get into the Bible, as these folks did every day, get into the Word until the Word gets into you. Because folks, that's what's going to change our hearts, it's going to transform our lives. And statistically speaking, let's be honest, we don't do a very good job with this. A USA Today report shows that only 11% of Americans read the Bible every day. More than half read it less than once a month or never at all. Now, y'all know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, that's all Americans, right? That's a lot of unbelievers in there. Well, guess what? George Barna studied, quote, born-again believers. And here's what he found. He found that 18% of born-again Christians read the Bible every day. Less than one in five professing Christians read the Bible every single day. He said 23% say they never read the Word at all. Nearly one in four Christians never crack open the Bible. 
That's a problem. That's a huge problem because it's the word, again, that changes us, right? It's the word that brings us closer to the Lord. Donald Whitney, who literally wrote the book, Spiritual Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life, said, no spiritual discipline is more important than the intake of God's word. Nothing can substitute for it. There simply is no healthy Christian life apart from a diet of the milk and meat of Scripture. How many loves their Bibles? About statistically so. All right. Well, hopefully we can change that this morning. Let's talk about why the Word's so important, what the Word is and what it does for us. The Bible is a tremendous book, folks. It is made up of 66 books 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New. The Bible was written by shepherds, by farmers, by tent makers, by physicians, fishermen, priests, philosophers, and even kings. It was written by 40 different people on three different continents in three different languages over a 1,600-year period. The first Bible was translated into English in, what year was it? 1382 by John Wycliffe. 1382. The first book ever printed by Johannes Gutenberg on the printing press was the Bible. Since then, the Bible's been translated into more than 2,000 languages. It's the best-selling book in all of history and all the world. The amazing fact, though, to me is that the Bible, in spite of being written over a vast period of time by different people in different places and different languages, is that it is perfectly unified in its purpose and in its message, which is Jesus Christ is Lord... And that he loves people. Now, even more important than these fascinating details are five principles about God's word that as followers of Christ, we have to understand. And the first is that the word is inspired. Now, we accept that scripture is the word of God written by men with their own abilities, own styles, own experiences, but under the divine inspiration of God himself. The Bible even says this in 2 Timothy chapter 3, that all Scripture is inspired by God, or in other words, the literal translation would be, it is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness. Now, because God's Word is inspired, it's useful for all of these different things. But because it's inspired, we've got to understand, it is very powerful. This is no ordinary book or set of words. God's word is powerful. Think about this. God's word was literally just that in the very beginning. When there was no earth, there was no pen and paper, there was no man to write down God's word in, in the history of God's hand, in, in the, God's hand throughout history. But think about when God was just God in the beginning. And then something marvelous happened. What happened? God spoke. And out of the mouth and imagination comes these simple words. Let there be. We need to read our Bibles, folks. Let there be light. And there was light. It just happened. God spoke and and everything that is came into existence from the power of his own mind and his own mouth. And we call this ex nihilo creation, meaning out of nothing. There was absolutely nothing but God. And God spoke and everything came into existence. God's word is powerful. And now we're fortunate enough to have not only God's spoken word, but his divinely inspired written word for us to read, to study, to memorize, to meditate on. And it too is powerful. 
and transformational, and it changes our lives. And so, as Christians, this should be a, a daily discipline of ours to be in God's Word, understanding that we need it just like we need food. How many is going to eat lunch today? Absolutely. Amen. Me too. We need food for our daily sustenance, right? Our body needs it. Likewise, our souls need to be fed, and we find that through God's Word. Because God's Word is inspired, we can trust this second point, and that is that God's Word is inerrant. Now, this, one, this one's been attacked throughout history, especially modern history. Inerrancy is the idea that the Bible has no errors, that it has no falsehoods, no falsities, no mistakes, and it's rooted in the understanding that it's inspired. Because think about this, if God inspired His Word, it means that the, His Word is incapable of error because God is incapable of making mistakes. I'm very thankful that our God is incapable of mistakes. He's incapable of lying. He's incapable of falsehoods. And so if the word is inspired by God as it claims to be, and it contains errors, then as a reflection of the author, that means the author could make a mistake. But we know this is not possible for our God, who is all-knowing, all-powerful, and perfect, to make a mistake. Now, the other major issue with this is if the Bible has a mistake or an error in it or a lie, then how do we know which parts to believe and which parts not to believe? How do we know if we can't trust, for example, the virgin birth? How can we trust the resurrection? If we can't trust creation, how can we trust the incarnation? But we can trust the reliability of Scripture because we know the author. We know who wrote it, who inspired it. God doesn't lie, He doesn't fail, and He doesn't err. Tells me you can trust everything in the Bible from its geology to its theology, and you'll be all right. But consider this for a moment. If that's not enough, let's look at it the way the world will look at any text of antiquity. The secular method for determining the historical reliability of an ancient document is kind of like this. They look at when that document was written by the author, and then they look down through history and see how close they can come to that original writing for the first copies. And then they see how many copies do they have and how do they match up. So here's, here's just an example. The closest thing that we have in reliability to the New Testament are the writings of Plato. Not Plato you play with, kids. It's a man, Plato. Plato. Plato's writings, we move forward about 150 years and we have the first copies, the oldest copies we can find of Plato's writings. And we have about 250 copies of those, fairly reliable in terms of historicity. Now, you take the New Testament. Do you know how close the New, uh, the, the New Testament comes, the copies of the New Testament come within the original writing? Some within about 30 years. And we don't have... 250 copies. We have over 24,000 copies of the New Testament. The New Testament, historically speaking, from a secular standard, is the most reliable document in existence. You can trust your Bible. But not only is the Bible without error, the Word is infallible. That means it's not only without error, but it's completely true. You see, it's one thing to know that what is written is without error, but it's another thing to know is what was actually written true. 
And we go back to the same argument again, if nothing else, because we know God cannot lie and is incapable of lying, then His Word must be true. Now, I love the example of the Bereans in this text, in our story. They believed the Word was true to the point that when presented with a new argument, which was the gospel of Christ through the mouth of the Apostle Paul, they turned to the Scriptures. They turned to the Word to check what Paul was saying and to see if it was actually true. Likewise, listen very carefully. Everything that we hear and say and do should be weighed against Scripture. You should ask, was that sermon biblical? I'm giving you permission. I'm encouraging you. As a matter of fact, I'm telling you, when I preach a sermon, go home and read the Word for yourself and ask, is that biblical? Is it scriptural? Is, is that song that we're singing biblical? Is the, or the things that we're doing as a church and as a people, even as a nation, is it biblical? And what will, what will happen sometimes when we get into the Word and we see the truth, it may prompt us to change the way that we look at some things. And maybe even change the way that we do some things in order to align with what God's Word actually says. For me, one of the greatest testimonies to the truth of God's Word comes from the apostles themselves. You take all of these timid, frightened men prior to the resurrection, and then after the resurrection and after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, they they became emboldened for God's Word. They were willing to not only stand up for the truth of the Word and the resurrection and the gospel, they were willing to suffer and die horrific deaths for that truth. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not, I'm not going to die for a lie. But these men put it all on the line for God's Word. Simon Peter was crucified upside down on a cross. His brother Andrew was crucified on an X-shaped cross and preached the gospel for several days while he hang, held on for dear life. James, the son of Zebedee, was killed by a sword. Philip died by either hanging or crucifixion. Bartholomew was flayed to death or maybe crucified. Matthew was martyred in Ethiopia. Thomas was killed with a spear. James was crucified and then his body torn into pieces. Thaddeus was shot to death with arrows. Simon the Zealot crucified. The apostle Paul beheaded. And John was the only one that died of natural causes. But before that, he was dunked in a boiling pot of hot oil and exiled to the island of Patmos, but eventually he died of old age. To me, it's highly unlikely that these men, Simon Peter, who once denied that he ever knew Jesus, would eventually give up their lives for something that wasn't true. They knew that what they were preaching and proclaiming and standing for was truth. Now, God's Word is not only without error, but again, its contents are true. You can believe it. You can count on it. You can stand upon its promises. You can trust it to change your life. But not only that, it's interminable. That was actually a cool word that I just found this week. But it means that it's endless. God's word is timeless. It's not going anywhere. It will not become irrelevant. When the word was written, it is since that time stood the test of time, since Job penned some of its earliest uh, lines to the time when John wrote part of it in exile. It has survived millennia. It has survived world wars. It has survived famines. It has survived people messing with its contents. But the Holy Spirit has preserved God's Word throughout time, and it will continue to do so until time ends. Jesus said in Luke chapter 21, Heaven and earth will pass away. But what? My words will never pass away. 
I believe the point for us in this is that the message of the gospel will never lose its power. It will never cease to be effective. Culture may tell us there is no absolute truth or that truth changes with the whims of society. But let me tell you something. God's word does not change. The truth of God's word will never change because our God never changes. The Bible says he is the same today, yesterday, and forevermore. And what God's word called sin 2,000 years ago, guess what? It's still sin today. And what God's word called holy 2,000 years ago is still holy and sacred even today and always will be. His word will not change. And it's as powerful today as when God first spoke this universe into existence. Because of that, we have to understand this last thing, perhaps the most important for us. And that's that the word is not only inspired, inerrant, infallible, and interminable, but it's indwelling. Now that word means that it's permanently present in or spiritually possessing someone's soul or mind. When the Bereans heard the message and they turned to the truth of God's word, the word, it changed them. Now understand, it didn't just change and brighten their day. It didn't just encourage them in this season of life. It changed them forever because they were saved. They believed what the word said and they were saved. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 tells us, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Folks, again, the word will change you and it will change you for the better. Sometimes we're afraid of the change that God and His Word may bring to our life, but I promise you the Word will change you for the better. And we have to get into the Word until the Word gets into us. And it begins to melt our hearts of stones, break down our walls, heal our past hurts, renew our minds, wash us and cleanse us, and make us closer to God in the image of Christ. How do we do that? One, we read it. If we can't read it, most of us have a phone, right? We can listen to it. If we can't listen to it, maybe we can uh, watch it, but we study it, we memorize it, we get it into our minds and into our hearts, and we apply it every single day to our lives. It's an amazing book, and it's said that these words were written on the inside cover of D.L. Moody's Bible. I want to read these words to you. It's beautiful. Inside D.L. Moody's Bible, it said, This book contains the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy, its precepts are binding, its histories are true, and its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise, believe it to be safe, and practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It is the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian character. Here, paradise is restored, heaven opened, and the gates of hell disclosed. Christ is its grand subject, our good its design, and the glory of God is its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, and prayerfully. It is given to you in life and will be opened in the judgment and will be remembered forever. It involves the highest responsibility, will reward the greatest labor, and will condemn all who trifle 
with its sacred contents. I'm very thankful that God gives us this treasure called His Word. This book that contains His own mind, His character, the things that He likes, the things that He despises, the way that we can go to heaven by giving us the truth about Jesus Christ. And so my challenge for you this morning, Christian, is very simple. Are you in the Word? Are you reading it? Are you systematically memorizing and allowing it to dwell in your mind? Are you studying God's Word? Are you, more importantly, living out God's Word in your life? For those that aren't saved, do you know what the Word says? This is my challenge for you. The Word says you can be saved. It doesn't say that you deserve it. It doesn't say that you can earn it. But it says that God in His grace and love for you sent His only begotten Son that if you would believe in Him, you would not perish but could have everlasting life. It says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you might be saved. You what? You shall be saved. You will be saved. I'm glad that somebody knows the Word. It says that you will be saved this morning if you place your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ. Let's stand together this morning as we close in prayer. The Apostle Paul says that the Word, that it cleanses us, it washes us. You need some of that. You need to be washed in the Word. Maybe there's